CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left Will, Penny, Dr. Smith, and the robot on a scientific expedition. None were aware that within moments, they were to encounter the most incredible assortment of alien creatures ever assembled on one planet. What's your reading? Quartz conglomerate. Cobalt magnesium, 005%. That's not very good. Don says it has to be 1% at least or it won't work. He would have done much better to listen to me. There is absolutely no cobalt magnesium in these rocks. Dr. Smith, we have to find some. Unless we can get the purifier to work on the plants, our food supply won't last a week. (gasps) Dr. Smith, is something wrong? I'm afraid it's the old trouble, my dear. My eyes. It's what comes of not listening to one's doctor, I suppose. For years, he warned me to avoid overworking. Well, let's push on, shall we? Oh, dear. There's no point to that, Dr. Smith. You rest here. We can cover the rest of the area. No, no, I wouldn't think of it. We'll sing out if we find anything. An alert mind might be of great value at the proper moment. I'll just rest for a bit here. Would you help me, my dears? My back is extremely delicate today. Yes, careful, careful, careful. Yes, yes. Ah, 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 ah. Ah, Yes, thank you so much. I shall be here, available in the event of any emergency, however slight. Don't hesitate to call me. Yes, sir. Come on, we'll try that vein over there. And don't worry about me. I shall be perfectly all right. Ah. Go along with the children. They are your intellectual equal. Oh, go away, you silly goose. I told you to go away with your electronic mumbo-jumbo. Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 34th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Space Circus. And Kurt, as ringmaster of this podcast, I'm counting on you to send in the clowns to cheer me up because I'm still suffering from post-space separation syndrome. Oh, the pain, the pain. (laughs) Well, I feel your oh, the pain. Only four episodes in space, and now we're marooned again on another rock. (laughs) Dr. Smith would say, (laughs) the joyride is over. Indeed. But uh, we all know 
Irwin could be pretty cheap with his budget. And the moment you said Lost in Space was beating Star Trek in the ratings, I had a bad feeling Irwin was not only going to take his foot off the spending accelerator, but he was going to start tapping on those brakes. And here we are, <laughs> marking time on this miserable world of, of what? what is it? I mean, the last one was pre-Planus. Do we even find out the name of this, this globule, this planetoid? No, I, I think the fans have dubbed it something like uh, the planet in Sector 330 or something like that. Whatever they referred to it in, in the uh, Forbidden World, you know, John spots the planet. Oh, okay. All <laughs> but, right. All right. That works for me. Good. But there's nothing official, so I don't know if that would be considered canon or not. So anyway, kind of fun. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. Space Circus was 38-year-old Bob and 41-year-old Wanda Duncan's premier effort on Lost in Space. The married screenwriting duo had already penned numerous TV scripts for a variety of shows, including Have Gun, Will Travel, which is how they met story editor Tony Wilson, who'd also written and directed for that series. Wilson would have no trouble getting work for the Duncans on Irwin Allen's shows, and they would go on to write five episodes of Lost in Space, nine time tunnels, and three for Land of the Giants. Since this was their first one for Lost in Space, they delivered an extra third draft of their script, gratis, which Wilson appreciated, because that meant he didn't have to do an overall polish, just a few revisions based on notes from Irwin Allen and CBS. By the way, the Duncans were already very familiar with Lost in Space because they watched it regularly with their own kids, and their dialogue certainly shows that. Where the story falls short, however, has much more to do with the limitations of the budget, as you just indicated, and other production constraints. For example, the script's detailed descriptions of the aliens and various cosmic circus wonders were much more interesting than what eventually made it to the screen. Take, for example, the Duncan's description of the cosmic space monster. It was described as an awesome combination of many animals with eyes, ears, and nose out of their proper places, and ugly fangs, webbed fingers, and the body of a gorilla. We got the gorilla body, at least with white fur this time, but the rest of the creature was nothing close to the Duncan's description. Less than impressive realizations like that were a common denominator throughout the episode, making this space circus fall far short of the greatest show on Earth or any planet. Uh, yeah, they reused that bear suit so many times that now they're turning it white. <laughs> that way, we're not supposed to notice it's being recycled. And if that's not obvious enough, rest assured, we'll see that costume again and again and again <laughs> in Treasure of the Lost Planet, Revolt of the Androids, and Hunter's Moon. But at least we don't see the zipper, so there is that to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> You're guaranteed almost any time you see any monster, it's going to show up again. So if you missed it, yeah. uh, if you missed it the first time, just... if you liked it the first time, you're going to love it the second time. <laughs> Not to mention the third or fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Well, Harry Harris is back for his fourth of five episodes of Lost in Space. We last saw the 44-year-old director for the enjoyable All That Glitters. Irwin Allen kept Harry busy on all his shows, and he wound up doing two time tunnels. 12 Voyage to the Bottom of the Seas, and a whopping 24 episodes of Land of the Giants. And later, Alan would hire Harris to direct a couple of made-for-TV movies, The Swiss Family Robinson and Alice in Wonderland. By the time he ended his career in the mid-2000s, Harris had racked up nearly 90 TV and film directing credits. 
Oh, man. I, only Irwin Allen would dare to recycle the Swiss Family Robinson <laughs> formula for his Lost in Space show in the 1960s. And then again, just 10 years later for the Swiss Family Robinson movie. And then again for the Swiss Family Robinson TV show, which ran for 20 friggin' episodes. All this after Disney had already made a very famous movie out of it in 1960. What chutzpah! And that's not all. He also recycled the Dr. Smith role in both the movie and the TV series. He had a character named Jeremiah Worth, who was never in the original book, but he added him just like Smith was in order to create conflict within the group. And like Smith, uh. he was his weasley coward, always looking to enrich himself and save his own skin. But when push comes to shove, he might help save the family if he absolutely has to. He was played by Cameron Mitchell, and he was the saving grace of the show. Other notable players were the father Robinson, played by Martin Milner, oh. who most of us remember. He was yeah. the blonde cop from Adam 12, Officer Pete Malloy. Yeah. He was actually, uh, he got on that show on Adam 12 because he was a gambling buddy of Jack Webb, who produced Adam 12 and also did Dragnet, of course. Oh, and two child actors, Willie Ames, who later starred in Eight is Enough, and mm -hmm. a very young Helen Hunt, who later became Jamie Bachman in Mad About You. Oh, wow. So uh, they make some really early appearances there. That's cool. Yeah, I vaguely remember that series, but it's it's crazy. Erwin, <laughs> you know, hey, it worked once. <laughs> yeah, Swiss Family Robinson, three times, and into <laughs> another TV series, and Dr. Smith again. Wow, this guy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, one of the reasons Harry was so popular with Erwin was because he was very efficient. And that applies to this episode as well. It was filmed within the budgeted six days from the 28th of July through the 4th of August, 1966. And it aired Wednesday night, October 12th, 1966. Not only does Space Circus feature all our regular characters, but it's chock full of guest stars, topped by the 53-year-old character actor James Westerfield, who plays the chief protagonist, Dr. Marvello. With a background on Broadway and in movies, Westerfield was already a well-recognized face on TV, especially on the era's many westerns. But out of a total of 159 acting credits, he only made it on one other Irwin Allen show, appearing on an episode of Time Tunnel titled End of the World. In addition to acting, Westerfield had extensive experience as a set designer, producer, and director on the stage. You know, Westerfield had a long career in show business. He trained as a young man at the Pasadena Playhouse, and mm. his roommate was fellow actor George Reeves, a.k.a. Superman. Wow. They were lifelong friends until Reeves, you know, met an untimely death uh, from lead poisoning. Uh, when I heard <laughs> Westerfield... <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> That's Pretty terrible. Anyway. I know. When I heard Westerfield's voice, I thought, I bet he did radio dramas because he could tell he was well-trained in elocution. And it turns out that he did do radio. He was in the Mole Mystery Theater. He was in Gunsmoke. He was in Have Gun, Will Travel, just to name a few. But he was mainly on TV. And he also did some great movies, including the classic On the Waterfront. Yeah. And True Grit. Oh, yeah. But he's perfect for this kind of role. I think he does this bit in several. I think I remember an Andy Griffith episode where he played sort of a flim-flam man that showed up to town. and Oh, yeah. He'd be <laughs> tried, good at that. Tried to steal Barney's bullet or something like uh -huh. that. So. Oh, this is a magic bullet, Barney. A magic bullet. <laughs> <laughs> you plant it in the ground, it'll grow your gun. 
Well, Melinda O'Fee was only 23 years old and just starting out when she played Fenestra. While her filmography includes 37 acting credits on a variety of shows through the early 90s, sci-fi fans might best remember her when she later starred as David McCollum's wife, Dr. Kate Weston, in the 1970s series The Invisible Man. You remember that one? Yeah, I do remember that one. But, you know, I, I and I remember seeing her a lot, but I don't remember seeing David very much in that show. Was he? I don't know what. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Hmm. Uh well, yes, and they did disappear after one season, so he, uh, <laughs> he, he finished in <laughs> true to form. Yep. Well, playing Nubu was the 32-year-old Michael Green, who had just finished a guest role as Matches, one of the Riddler's goons on the Batman episodes, Ring of Wax and Give Him the Axe. Ah. That's a classic. Mm-hmm. Amazingly... Green was working as recently as 2019 Mm. and had amassed over 115 acting credits in TV and films before passing away early in 2020 at the age of 86. Good for him. Well, no, I think it was bad for him to die, (laughs) personally. Yeah, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Boy, we're we're really dancing on people's graves today, aren't we? That's too bad. Well, it's just after Halloween, so. True. Well, former bodybuilder and restaurant owner Harry Turk Vardarijan was 41 when he played the strongman Visho. From the 50s through the late 90s, Vardarijan's bistro called Turk's Tavern was a favorite haunt of Tinseltown celebrities, including Irwin Allen, which may partly explain his unusual appearance in several movies and TV shows. Uncredited in this part, his short acting career included eight other small uncredited roles on several popular shows of the era, including Get Smart and The Virginian. Oh, you know, it's kind of funny his name was Harry because he's completely bald. In fact, with that smooth scalp and graying beard, he really reminded me of that killer carny clown, Captain Spaulding from the Rob Zombie 2003 horror film, House of a Thousand Corpses, a very creepy film. Did you see that one? No, I didn't see that one. If you really want to creep out, watch that one. The real Captain Spaulding, uh, Sig Haig, he died in 2019, so. Oh, wow. And finally, Dawson Palmer is back yet again as the man behind the mask playing the dreaded cosmic monster. Hey, did you notice he got a credit at the end of this episode for playing the monster? That was cool. Wow. I hadn't noticed that in earlier episodes. Well, he may be on a roll here. I did not notice that, but I do know he gets credited in the next episode as well. So Mm -hmm. maybe he uh, got that instead of a raise. Yeah. (laughs) But we're giving you billing, Dawson. Yeah, I was always (laughs) impressed. You know, they say about Red Skelton, uh, one of the secrets to his success is that he offered to take less money if they would put his name in bigger print. Oh. You know, in the credits. And so, you know, I wondered, did he work for Irwin at some time? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Irwin got a lot of mileage out of working those credits, just like with Harris and the special guest star role. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to some familiar tracked music from Season 1, Space Circus is the third episode of Season 2 to get an original score. This one features music composed by Herman Stein, his last score for the series. With a long career doing soundtracks for Universal in the 1950s, including several classic monster and sci-fi films like Creature from the Black Lagoon and This Island Earth, Stein also wrote music for three iconic early episodes during Season 1 of Lost in Space— The Derelict, There Were Giants in the Earth, 
and Welcome Stranger. Stein's scores for those episodes, which included the memorable Robinson family theme and the Dr. Smith theme, among others, would be tracked into many of the remaining episodes of Lost in Space. Proving his versatility, Stein's music for this episode sounds like it's from a completely different galaxy than his earlier work on Lost in Space. Gone is the danger and dread conjured up by his ominous derelict theme, and in is the wistful comedic theme he wrote for the character Marvello. That's no diss on Stein. He was just getting in sync with where Lost in Space was going in Season 2. So much so that one of his act-out cues for Space Circus would be reused multiple times for the series' numerous comical endings. And with that, let's get on with the story. As we heard, the Act 1 teaser starts out with a narrator warning us that within moments, our castaways would encounter the most incredible assortment of alien creatures ever assembled on one planet. Well, naturally, the first castaway to encounter one of those creatures is Dr. Smith. Feigning a severe eye strain from overwork, Smith manipulates Will, Penny, and B9 into continuing their search for cobalt magnesium, an ore needed for their food purification unit, while he curls up next to a purple rock for a nice midday nap. You know, Kurt, that food purifier sure needs a lot of specialized chemicals to operate, The last time it was on the Fritz in Return from Outer Space, Will had to beam all the way back to Earth for some carbon tet, which Mm -hmm. is basically dry cleaning fluid. And now it's out of cobalt magnesium, which on Earth anyway is a man-made alloy and highly unlikely to be found naturally anywhere else in the universe. So I think the Robinsons better hope the Taurons left a matter transfer machine on this planet as well. Yeah, but, you know, as long as it sounds cool, who cares if it makes any sense? Cobalt, magnesium, whatever it is, it's super sci-fi sounding, but that's good enough. It's like that Zenith color television commercial that Dick Tufeld voiced, the one that you inserted in the review of episode 30. Mm-hmm. He says, available with Zenith Space Age remote control. <laughs> Just adding those two words, Space Age, makes it sound so sci-fi. Like the astronauts were using those things to watch TV in space. Yeah, Kind of makes you wonder, were they watching Lost in Space while in space? I mean, I don't know. After all, they need to have some entertainment. But, you know, here's an interesting bit of NASA trivia for you, though. Many of the specialists that they took on those space missions were actually doctors. You know, they had PhDs. Mm-hmm. They probably had hundreds of them that they've hauled up there through the decades. But... We all know the most common name in this country is Smith. Do you ever remember them taking a Dr. Smith on one of those missions? I can't help but think that's not a coincidence. I think, you know, subconsciously, (laughs) they're just playing it safe. Uh, Better safe than sorry. That's funny. Yeah, that cobalt magnesium, that that is techno babble for sure. (laughs) For sure. Well, anyway, moments after the trio have gone we see a dark shadow ominously crawl over Smith's relaxing form, accompanied by a strange alien growling. Reaching into the frame, a huge paw, covered in woolly white fur, attempts to shake the dozing doctor from his rest. Eyes still closed, Dr. Smith irritably attempts to brush the creature's hand away, which he first mistakes for the robot's claw. Smith's annoyance turns to anxiety as he runs his hand up the snarling alien's shaggy arm. Uh Uh-oh. When he slowly opens his eyes, instead of B9's roly-poly silver silhouette, 
He's confronted by the hair-raising sight of a grizzly gorilla covered in bushy white fur. Oh, dear! <laughs> the camera only gives us the briefest glimpse of this yeti-like monster, but it's long enough to see that this savage simian is no cuddly bloop. By the way, where's the bloop? <laughs> he's been missing for three episodes. <laughs> yeah, maybe been... he's uh, changed colors and grown <laughs> some you know, hairy ones. <laughs> ate, some, uh, ate some fruit from this planet. Uh-huh. <laughs> Frozen in terror, Smith covers his eyes and screams for help. But seconds later, when Will, Penny, and the robot rush back to the fearful physician's rescue, there's no sign of that platinum blonde beast. Finally uncovering his eyes, the relieved rascal recounts, Oh dear, I thought I saw a monster, a horrible, ugly creature. Thank goodness I had the presence of mind to call out and scare him away. <laughs> You know, Kurt, we've already mentioned how differently the Duncans envisioned that alien creature. But even so, as our resident monster authority, did you find that creature as scary as Dr. Smith did? Well, uh, as Count Floyd would say, ooh, that was scary, kids. (laughs) Or not, I mean. But, you know, he was big and he sounded scary. And although that scene was played for laughs, you have to admit, if you were trying to sleep and you thought you were swatting away the arm of a friend, only to realize it's an arm of a giant, ape-sized, hairy creature, you would probably need to change your underwear. You know, I know I would. Yeah, I think the payoff was having the arm come in and, and doing that whole bit with, with Smith. Yes. Going, Go away, leave mm-hmm. me alone. You know, that was pretty good. One interesting little tidbit of trivia about this one is... There was an online interview with Paul Zastavnevich, the costume guy, and he admitted that they actually reused the mask from the fish man alien from A Change of Space, and they just redressed it with some white fur glued it onto the outside mm. to make it work. And if you look close, you can kind of see that it's the same mask, but I never would have guessed it at first. Yeah, yeah I'll give him credit for, I mean, I, you can't blame him for saving some money if they're able to disguise it that way sure, and, uh, without sure. making it obvious, and it wasn't that obvious, so... Yeah. It's a little better than just painting it as silver or gold or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I wish they had shown that attention to detail with some of the other monsters. But, uh, oh, well. But then it wouldn't be as Irwin as we love, you know? I mean, yes. there's something to be said for both uh, methods. It is. It's almost a game, seeing if you can spot these things, you know? Yeah. So it's fun. Well, just before we go to the opening credits, the brief tranquility is suddenly broken when B9 alerts. Warning! 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 Alien approaching! What? Where? Where? Our space pioneers scan all directions for the sight of the unwelcome intruder, when abruptly their gaze is focused dead ahead. Smith yelps in panic, (laughs) and instinctively clutches his trusty human shield will for support as they face down the approaching threat. The camera cuts to the specter that has our castaways staring slack-jawed in shock, but instead of the return of the albino ape. This time, we're shown an even weirder apparition. It's a very human-looking older man, dressed in black top hat and tails over a blood-red vest, and sporting a fancy cane and several days' growth of salt and pepper stubble on his smirking, silent face. Will and Penny appear more astonished than afraid of the stranger, but Dr. Smith's in full meltdown mode, and as usual, screams at the robot. Well, don't just stand there. Do something. (laughs) V9 excitedly waves his accordion arms in defense, but instead of backing off, 
the menacing maestro takes a few threatening steps towards our fearful foursome. What now? Well, recoiling from the natty newcomer, our helpless castaways watch as the alien wordlessly raises a small, innocent-looking jar, which mysteriously erupts with a Roman candle-like jet of fire. Uh-oh. And Kurt, you know, I did think that was odd that instead of firing even a warning shot at the intruder, the robot just waved his arms excitedly. But at least he didn't drop that wacky-looking ore detector he was holding. <laughs> did you see that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it did seem out of character that he let the threat get so close without doing anything, but maybe the fact that the alien looked so human was confusing the robot's prime directive. Mmm, okay, I'm buying it. I'll go with that. That sounds like perfect logic to me, so, yeah, write it down. Computer logic. Yes. That computes. Before our heroes can escape, the curious caller tosses the flaming flask right at their feet causing it to explode. In a blinding blaze of smoke and sparks. Oh dear. This flashy foreigner certainly knows how to capture an audience. But will his next act be the last act for our space family? Stay tuned until after the break, kids, to find out. Hi, this is Mike Clark, former writer for Starlog Magazine about all aspects of Lost in Space, and you're listening to the Alpha Control Podcast with Lane and Kurt. When we return from the break, fierce clouds of smoke are still billowing from the tricky trespasser's exploding jelly jar, and his B-9 comically reports... Warning! Warning! Visibility zero! All aircraft are hereby grounded! Silence, you chattering magpie! That was just a harmless smoke deterrent. Useful in holding off small dogs and renegade robots. But permit me to introduce myself. I am Dr. Andreas Marvello, professor extraordinaire, galactic entrepreneur, and bringer of joy to the crowned heads of the universe. How do you do? I'm sorry, sir, to have given you such fright. You didn't frighten him, sir. He saw a monster. Correction. He said he thought he saw a monster. Oh, indeed, he did see a monster. Ha! That was the cosmic monster, one of the wonders of the universe, the fiercest specimen from Supernova 12. Good heavens. But you need have no more fear of the monster. He has been recaptured. He is back in his cage. Where do you keep him, sir? I'd be delighted to tell you, Mr. Uh... Robinson, Will Robinson. And this is my sister, Penny. How do you do, my dear? Hello. This is Dr. Smith and our robot. How do you do, Dr. Smith? My dear sir, I am Dr. Smith. That is the robot. Oh, I must say I am delighted to meet you all. I was beginning to think that this planet must surely be deserted. And in my business, that would be catastrophic. Just what is your business, sir, if you don't mind my asking? Come along with me and I'll show you. I was programmed to return you to the Jupiter within four hours. The time is almost up. You may return and inform the others we shall be along presently, Go. Very well. This way, please. With that, Marvello leads our castaways along to see what other wonders of the universe this colorful character has brought with him. You know, Kurt, after that dramatic entrance, this Marvello character seemed to win over our castaways 
with his expressive face, bombastic voice, and flim-flam salesmanship. But I was having a very strong flashback to the scene when we were introduced to the space trader back in season one. Am I alone here, or were you getting that kind of vibe as well? <laughs> oh, and another thing I couldn't get over was his caterpillar eyebrows. <laughs> oh, man. Those weren't just caterpillar eyebrows, bro. Those were Mothra-sized caterpillar <laughs> eyebrows because they were monster-sized, hairy-ass, creepy crawler eyebrows. They were the only thing, though, that looked alien about this guy. Yeah. I yeah. haven't seen such thick alien eyebrows on the screen since I saw Duke Leto's mint hat in David Lynch's version of Dune. Do you remember him? Oh, yes. People Hawa, yes. <laughs> the master assassin for House Atreides. Those eyebrows. Yeah, he had two two. Pays. Yeah, they look more like like thick horizontal sideburns. I mean, they were amazing. Yeah. But yeah, no, he does bring back that vibe from the space trader, you know. And he even had kind of a similar delivery. He did. Not quite, but it was there was yeah. something similar in the demeanor. Yes, yes. It's a lot of salesmanship going on here, so he certainly yeah, but, but you know, one thing that did seem odd was the way that they trusted this guy so quickly. They sent their only protection, the robot home, to tell their parents they, they were running off with this stranger to see what he had up his sleep yeah and why did the robot allow that yeah you know why did the robot just like okay you know i'll go and tell them shouldn't he have spoken up and said yeah you know i do not advise this you know or something like that (laughs) he should have yeah yeah anyway well sometime later will penny and dr smith arrive at the edge of a large clearing to take in the sight of marvello's extravaganza the greatest show in space But cutting to a long shot of the aliens' encampment, it's clear that Marvello is more of a huckster than a professor extraordinaire. Because instead of the big top, elephants, or even a midget car filled with clowns, we're shown a run-down open-air collection of carnival paraphernalia, including some old-fashioned circus banners, a crude wooden stage, the caged cosmic monster, and a couple of other performers milling about all centered around what appears to be the aliens' well-loved silver spaceship. And this crudely patched-up water tank-like vehicle certainly looks like it has a lot of light years on the odometer. Indeed, Marvello admits to Dr. Smith that they do a great deal of moving about the galaxy. Wearing a cagey expression, Dr. Smith asks their host, In your wanderings, have you by any chance ever visited a rather small planet called Earth? The shady showman proudly replies, No, I'm afraid not. We've always made it a point to avoid the lesser places. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How much lesser can you get than this deserted planet? I'm not sure, but anyway. Yeah, and you know, that line was funny, but it unintentionally reminded the audience how ridiculous it is that these aliens all look completely human, except for the Yeti, and use English with a Midwestern accent as their primary language, True. including even when they talk to each other in private. Yet they've never even visited Earth. That does seem a little bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, it, what are the odds? What are the odds? What are the yeah. odds? <laughs> we got to come up with another theory to explain this. I'm not sure what it would be, but uh, anyway. Well, getting on with the tour, Marvello theatrically presents Visho, the strongest man in any universe. Dressed only in a bear skin and sandals, the bald, bearded brute demonstrates his brawn by pulling a tree out of the sand by its roots and carrying it off screen. Wow, Kurt. Who knew tree removal could be so thrilling? Wah. 
Yeah, really. <laughs> Especially when it's such a thin tree with short roots lifted straight out of dry sand. I hope that's not the climax of their circus performance, or they're really going to need to spike the drinks. Jeez. <laughs> Make mine a double. <laughs> mm. Then Marvello leads the three castaways over to the unconquerable cosmic monster. <laughs> Thankfully, the vicious beast is safely behind bars inside a familiar-looking space-age circus cage. I say familiar because we've seen that prop before, first when it was used to trap Dr. Smith in Season 1's The Keeper, and later to capture the bog monster in Ghost in Space. This time, the prop's original sliding plexiglass door has been replaced with futuristic jail bars made from frosted plastic tubes with blinking Christmas lights inside. I guess I'll give them credit for trying to make the recycled cage look different from the last two times we've seen it, but it's a far cry from the script's description of electronic bars of light that could be switched on and off. Of course, that would have required some expensive animation, so instead, Irwin opted for flashing plastic pipes. You know, I must be getting soft in my old age, because when I saw that cage, the very first thing that popped in my mind was, my God, that cage is tinier than Little Debbie's space closet. <laughs> <laughs> that poor monster's supposed to live in that short telephone booth for how long? I don't know. This wasn't like just a little brief thing like it was with the other monsters. This was this cage. Right. And he's fidgeting around like he really wants to get out pretty bad, too. No food dish, no water bowl, no toilet. He can't lay down. He can't even stand up all the way. He just sort of crouches forever and growls. I think the real monster is the one that designed that cage. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It was, it was painful to look at. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah. Well, I have a soft spot for animals, too, so I, that would be cruel to leave them in there. Better get the uh, SBCA back on speed dial here. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, I guess it makes it better knowing it's just a guy in a suit. We can always be cruel to, pe <laughs> cruel to people. Well, that's the one thing about Lost in Space is it, it always kind of makes you feel sorry for the monsters. Yeah, you do. You really do. I mean, I even feel sorry for that mutant had to crawl back in the... Uh, the Cheerio yeah. pile, never to be seen from again. Or the Cyclops, you know, yeah. especially when you know that in the original script, you know, Debbie gave it a flower and accepted it, you know. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes a little tear fall from that giant eyeball. <laughs> Stop, Kurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that giant eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. That was cool. Well, moving along, Marvello escorts our trio of space pioneers over to the next wonder of the universe. Over here we have Nubu, juggler of cosmic forces which would destroy any other creature. <laughs> Dressed in a flashy star-studded purple tunic, the slick-haired, mustached performer turns from his inscrutable chest-sized cosmic generator to face the audience and silently bows in acknowledgement. The children appear impressed by all the hoopla, and Will moves in for a better look at Nubu's weird contraption, but is blocked just in time by Marvello's cane, and given a friendly warning not to get too close. Yeah, he might, <laughs> he might see that thing's made from all the broken parts the Robinsons left on that junk pile on Preplanus. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, changing the subject... Dr. Smith attempts to convince Marvello to take his troop to Earth for a booking, but the bombastic Barker's attention is diverted by the sound of Nubu's cosmic generator going into high gear. 
prompting Marvello to caution the purple performer to turn down the thermostat, adding for effect that, after all, they wouldn't want to incinerate the planet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Will asks if they really could incinerate the planet with that machine, and Marvello has a great response. He says, of course, that's what makes the act so spectacular, that element of danger, the possibility of complete destruction. Now, real circuses use that kind of language all the time to excite the audience by adding real danger, like performing a high-wire act without Mm. a net or throwing knives at a girl by a marksman who's wearing a blindfold. But those acts put the performer in danger, not the audience, let alone the entire planet. So this Marvello character, he has a real twisted sense of showmanship. Oh, boy, that's for sure. I didn't even think about that, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's crazy. Marvello, I want to talk to you. Uh, We have company, my dear. Well, the wondrous mood is awkwardly broken by a shrill feminine voice from off screen. And just then, an attractive young woman with long brown hair, dressed in a gold lame acrobat skirt, appears from behind the stage curtains. Seeing they have company, she catches herself, grits her teeth, then informs the cagey carny that she seems to have misplaced her jewels. Marvello changes the subject by grandly introducing her to their guests. I was just about to tell our guests about you, my dear. This is Fenestra, clairvoyant supreme, mistress of the lost arts of psychokinetology and extrasensory materialization. Henny's dazzled, but Will's skeptical, asking what I was thinking. If she can do all that, how come she can't find her jewels? <laughs> Marvello tap dances by promising to make a deeper study of that, uh, someday, (laughs) then pivots back to the smirking Fenestra, who wants to talk to him alone. After she storms off stage, Smith chimes in, A delightful creature. (laughs) Crossing his caterpillar eyebrows in exasperation, Marvello agrees. Oh yeah, he agrees all right, but only sarcastically. His expression makes it very clear he resents her nagging and henpecking. And it's pretty obvious that these two are in a May-December relationship. Mm -hmm. Did you notice he referred to her as my dear? Yes. the contempt that she shows him makes it pretty obvious it's a sexual relationship that isn't too satisfying, at least not for her. So if I were him, I'd keep my eye on the strong man, you know, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yep. Oh, that's crazy. Well, once she disappears, Marvello springs his pitch on our castaways, offering a free circus show in exchange for feeding dinner to the Cosmic Circus Troupe. Delighted at the prospect of being amazed, amused, and confounded, the kids run home to check with their parents. But Smith remains behind. He has a few matters to discuss with Marvello, doctor to doctor, or rather, charlatan to charlatan. Ah, well, I don't want to be like Finestra and spoil your presentation, especially when you're on such a roll. But it's worth mentioning that he asked the trio to pass out flyers about a show to the local village. And that's when the kids advise him that there isn't any town or population except the seven of them from the Jupiter 2, which kind of caught my attention because it was only last episode that Diablo parted ways. Mm. But isn't he still alive? <laughs> you know? But I guess we're supposed to forget all about that. Uh, gone and forgotten, right? <laughs> that would have been great, though, if he had just, like, appeared in the background watching the show, you know, peered over a rock, you know, or something like that. <laughs> Mr. Peepers. Uh, along with his bird buddy. <laughs> <laughs> ah! 
Well, once the children have left, Dr. Smith dons a sly smile and makes his pitch to Dr. Marvello. It occurs to me, Dr. Marvello, that we might be able to do a little business together, you and I, for our mutual benefit. Oh? It so happens that either by accident or providence, as you call it, you have come upon a theatrical act that will make you a very rich man. An act? One of the finest entertainers to be found anywhere. Me. What do you do? I am what is called a song and dance man. Had I not decided to follow a scientific vocation, I could easily have pursued a highly successful career upon the stage. You have experience. Oh, yes, indeed. The best kind of experience. I had the lead in my college musical. College? Yes. College is the highest form of entertainment on earth. (laughs) College plays. Yes, college. I can tell you from experience, my oldest sure confused college for entertainment. And all I can say is college certainly is the highest priced form of entertainment on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And if you'll pardon my presumption, sir, may I suggest that you allow me to audition? And then if you like my act, which I'm sure you will, perhaps you would consider heading for Andromeda by way of Earth. Let me assure you, sir, your show will be immensely successful there with Zachary Smith as the star. Star? You can scarcely expect me to accept minor billing on my own planet. Of course not. Marvello is noted for his fairness, his magnanimity. And talent always finds its own level. Then you will grant me an audition? Of course, whenever you're ready. Splendid. I shall polish up my act immediately. I shall be back. As you've said before, Kurt, for Smith, all roads lead to Earth, don't they? Yeah. And I did laugh when Smith said he could scarcely accept minor billing on his own planet, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Special guest star Jonathan Harris must have loved that line. Uh-huh. Well, with the act nearing climax, no sooner does the mischievous medic disappear than the fiery Fenestra reappears from backstage. Full of venom, the shapely shrew snakes her way down the steps and marches over to confront the would-be bringer of joy. Flanked by Vicho and Nubu, Fenestra does all the talking, demanding to know what happened to her missing jewels. Sighing, Marvello admits, he was unfortunately forced to sell them to pay for their meager supplies. The mood turns tense as the camera slowly tracks in on the mendacious maestro's darkening face. Who ominously expects tonight's marvelous performance to be a rare magical moment to warm the soul. Following which, if he's not mistaken, they'll all dine sumptuously. Mm. Mm. The camera lingers on a close-up of Marvello, who now wears a creepy snaggletoothed grin. Uh-oh. Which left me thinking, Kurt, just what kind of magical performance will our castaways be subjected to? And speaking of dining sumptuously... Let's hope these aliens don't bring the To Serve Man cookbook with them to dinner. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that dialogue was definitely trying hard to turn the foreboding factor up to 11 on that scene. But I'm not sure it really worked. After all, what's so frightening about having dinner with the Robinsons, you know? I mean, other than her meatloaf from the computer. But like you say, (laughs) 
Maybe they were suggesting some sort of cannibalistic climax. But despite all that, I'm liking this Marvello character. But they do suggest he's a schemer and not to be fully trusted, and we'll soon find out. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I, I think it was just the way he said that, we'll all dine sumptuously, and the camera zoomed, yes. zoomed in. Yes. So it was sort yeah. of telegraphing. Some- I think it also had a music cue that was also spooky at that point, if I remember correctly. For sure. Well, so many terrifying questions, but I guess we'll have to wait until after this break for station identification to find out. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2... We're back at the Jupiter-2 campsite. The children are busy helping Marine get the hydroponic garden up and running, while Will assists John and Major West in repairing the Robinsons' food purification unit. You know, after hearing but not seeing this futuristic device in Season 1, I was glad to finally get a look at it. It's about as large as a medium-sized refrigerator, and the silver machine has a large open chamber at about knee height, under a control box unit with a mass of colored buttons and dials, all oddly topped off with, of all things, a repurposed direction-finding antenna loop. Interestingly, this is said to be the only appearance of this prop, at least on Lost in Space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, translation alert. For all you Irwin Allen fans out there, that means you can expect to see it on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Land of the Giants, <laughs> Time Tunnel, and at least two or three different Irwin Allen science fiction movies. That's just an educated guess, mind you. It could yeah. be a lot more. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Well, as the family works, Penny excitedly fills Big Sis in on all the wonders that she missed seeing back at Marvello's extravaganza. It sounds great to Judy, but there's little chance they'll ever get to see the space circus perform. Cutting her eyes over in Dad's direction, Penny raises Judy's spirits and her voice as she explains that, actually, Marvello's willing to put on a show for the castaways, and all he wants in return is dinner. Professor Robinson's ears perk up, but he holds his fire and continues on with his task. That is, until Judy repeats a little louder... Oh, is that all he wants? Just dinner? Turning his head in his daughter's direction, Professor Robinson shoots him a stern look. The answer is no. Judy only takes that no as the start of the negotiation, though. Even though Dad has reminded everyone that if they don't get that purifier repaired by the end of the week, their plants will be dead and they'll be out of food. Uh Uh-oh, more protein pellets for dinner. Mmm. Will sides with his sisters, but the machine's almost fixed. But is it? Don grabs a small potted plant from Judy and places it in the open chamber of the unit. Flipping several buttons, the Major announces, Now we'll see just how close we are. But after John clicks on the device, it only takes a couple of seconds for that potted plant to disappear in a bright flash powder detonation. With the scorched houseplant still smoking, the girls offer to give up their rations to feed the circus performers. Dad firmly says that it's out of the question, but John's about to be reminded that everyone has a boss. That's because a smiling Mrs. Robinson suddenly speaks up and asks Mr. Robinson to come over and 
give her a hand with the plant trays. <laughs> John's face tells it all as he sets the burnt plant down and shuffles over to help a smiling Maureen. Lowering his voice, he tries to be practical. Now, Maureen, there's no discussing any of this. We simply can't afford to waste our resources. You're very tired, aren't you, dear? I'm not tired. I'm frustrated. He's right, of course. There will be no discussion. The decision... <laughs> The decision's already been made, and not by Professor Robinson or the computer. You're very tired, aren't you, dear? Uh, Tired of arguing with you. (laughs) Using a softer approach, Maureen persuades John that, with all the strain the family's under, this might be one time when they can gain so much more by not being practical. Giving in to the inevitable, John shakes his head, smiles back at Mrs. Robinson, then waltzes back over to the family and relents. All right, go and invite the entertainers. Yes, sir. Can I go too? Yes, of course, dear. I don't see why not. I'll stay and help. No, go ahead. I can manage without you. You run along with Will and Penny. Thank you. We are going to have a wonderful party. (laughs) Overjoyed, the three Robinson kids rush out of the camp before Dad can change his mind. I love watching those scenes of Marine controlling the otherwise strong and independent professor. <laughs> They're watching him try to resist, but always cave in at the end. Mm-hmm. I guess on a subconscious level, husbands enjoy seeing other husbands fail at the same game that no man can win, <laughs> trying to say no to the supposedly weaker sex. I'm tempted to use that German word, uh, schadenfreude, for taking joy in another's mm-hmm. pain. But I think it's more than that, where we actually cringe and feel embarrassed for him because, let's face it, resistance is futile. Absolutely. The Germans have a word for that, too. Frimschrata, which literally means stranger shame. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I agree with you totally. I mean, that scene, I've been in that scene myself a few times, and I knew it was over for John when she said, you're, what was that? You're like? tired now, aren't you? You're very tired, aren't you, dear? <laughs> she was giving him an out. You know, this is you're not going to win this one, John. That's funny. Well, seeing the children happy brings smiles and chuckles to the adults' faces as well. But as Marine heads inside to start dinner, the jocularity is diminished as Doctor Smith passes her on his way out of the ship. Suspiciously carrying a small duffel bag behind his back, he's stopped and interrogated by Major West. What's in the bag, Smith? Some extra food rations you're smuggling out to stash away somewhere? Your barbarous remarks fall on deaf ears, Major. This happens to be an experiment. I'll bet. Well, you can put it aside for the moment and help us with a purifier. We have to install a reduction coil. I'm afraid that we'll have to wait. I have far more important work to do. Motioning for his servant companion, B-9, he adds, Come along with me, sir. Don watches in frustration as Dr. Smith skips out of work again, but the professor tells him to forget about it. They can install the part lots faster without him. My thoughts exactly. Yeah. Smith never shows Don what his experiment is, so I was a little surprised Wes let him slip past without at least double-checking it. Every other time he sneaks something past them, it's been something vital to their existence. The thruster control from blast off into space, the, mm-hmm. the fuel pellets from attack of the monster plants, the so-called breadsticks from Ghost Planet. So <laughs> do yourself a favor, Don. <laughs> never take Smith's word on what he's hiding in that bag behind its back. Yeah, 
<laughs> that is so true. That is so true. And it's always funny how he's hiding it behind, <laughs> behind his back. Yes. That would just raise alarms right there. That's great. Well, some distance away, Dr. Smith, duffel bag in hand, enters a quiet clearing with the robot trailing a few steps behind. Come along, come along, don't loiter. B-9 rolls to a stop next to Smith and has questions. What is the nature of your experiment? Electrical or mechanical? Neither. It is an emotional one. That does not compute. Of course it doesn't compute, Unini. You wouldn't understand it, and I certainly don't intend to waste my time explaining it to you. Dr. Smith turns his head and hums a few bars of a familiar old ditty, then asks B-9. How complete are your memory banks? Very complete. Good. I need the words to a song. la la Yes, that will be perfect. Tiptoe through the tulips, the words, please. Tiptoe through the tulips? That does not compute. The song was popular some time ago. Search your recall memory banks. You're bound to have recorded it at one time or another. Yes. Yes, what? Do you know the words, or don't you? I know the words. I do not understand them, but I know them. Shall I repeat them to you? Just a moment, let me think. It might perhaps be better if I were to use all of my energy for the art of terpsichore, and you were to... Yes, I think so. I want you to provide me with a musical accompaniment. Accompaniment? I want you to sing, you bumbling booby, and sing con expresso, put some expression into it. Is this important? Yours not to question why, yours to do as I say or die. This is going to earn my way back to Earth. That's what it's going to do. Now for the costume. Turning his attention to the duffel bag, Dr. Smith pulls out an old-fashioned straw boat hat and wooden cane and tosses the bag aside. Here we are. Placing the hat squarely on his noggin, Smith adjusts it with a final tap. There. Then looks up at the boobies bubble and asks, How do I look? B-9 answers with a quick ear swivel towards Smith but wisely maintains a golden silence. Now commence on the count of three. Are you ready? Holding his cane in both hands parallel to the ground in front of him, the world-famous song and dance man prances a few steps closer to the camera, then cuts his eyes back over his shoulder, commanding, One and two and three and... Tiptoe to the window, by the window. Smith springs into a ridiculous but lively little jig and tries to keep rhythm with B9's very off-key singing. The camera moves in as a look of complete revulsion takes over the dancing doctor's irritated face. Unable to take any more, he stops and storms back over to B9. Stop that unbearable caterwauling! I rather liked it. Then sing to yourself, you cackling cacophony. The din is deafening. Turning away from his aluminum accompanist, Smith steps back towards the camera. I suppose I should have to sing the song myself. But of course, I've always had a very fine voice. I even considered an operatic career at one time. I have heard you sing. Thank you. You'd never have made it. How dare you? Do you need me further? Smith refuses to turn his sour face in B9's direction. No, not at the moment. But at my audition, I shall require you to be on hand to provide applause at the appropriate moments. If you can manage that, now you may go. Tiptoe through the tulips. Flat as a pancake. Silence! Once he's alone, Twinkletoes Smith makes a solemn pledge. Despite all obstacles, the show must go on. 
Zachary Smith must assume his rightful destiny as a star. And resumes comically rehearsing for his big audition, this time to his own less than operatic vocals. Now then. Marvelous. Dancing better than ever. What a career I've missed. Absolutely marvelous. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was a very funny scene, Kurt, but... Remember, we previously mentioned that Bob May's voice was used whenever the robot sang, like when he sang opera with the showering Dr. Smith in the Oasis, Uh or recently in the Ghost Planet. Well, listening to that off-key singing here, I'm not convinced that was Bob. It sounded a lot more like Dick Tufeld in this instance. What did you think? Oh, yeah, that was twofold. And no way was it May. For one thing, you recognize the laugh. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want good singing. They specifically wanted bad singing. So it only made sense that they would use twofold for that. So in a way, I suspect that May mm-hmm. probably appreciated the fact that he wasn't asked to sing badly. Ah, that's a good point. I bet he did. Yeah. Although, you know, I'm sure he would have appreciated the, the screen time. You know, that was his one big thing. I think he took pride in singing. He wouldn't want to do it badly. Of course, yeah. That was a pretty funny scene, though, you have to admit. I, mm-hmm. I got a lot of laughs out of that one. Another neat thing about it is it really epitomizes that era, because Tiny Tim and Tiptoe Through the Tune-Ups, that was a personification of that era. Absolutely, absolutely. That you know, Talk about one-hit wonders. Tiny Tim really rode <laughs> that mm-hmm. uh, Tiptoe Through the Tulips uh, for all it was worth. But I can remember— Yeah, when, we, when people see it today, uh, and your new audience doesn't even know any of that Ex- stuff, and they're probably thinking, where the hell does this come from? <laughs> <laughs> you had to be there, folks. You had to be. Oh. Uh, Tiny Tim could have made a pretty convincing alien on Lost in Space mm-hmm. with that hair. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Well, later that night, it's showtime, and the Robinsons have a front row bench at Marvello's Extravaganza. First up is Marvello's Magic Act, where using Nubu as a subject, the half-price Houdini does the old vanishing head in the box trick. You know, I think, Kurt, even as a kid, I knew how that one worked. But nevertheless, the castaways act amazed, cheering and applauding in delight. Yeah, I loved uh, hearing that circus barrel organ and seeing those gorgeous canvas banners. I would love to also have one of those banners from Lost in Space. Would that be mm-hmm. great? Oh, it would. It was also fun seeing all those time-worn magic acts performed and hearing all the dramatic sideshow buildup Marvello provides. For the next act, he says... And now, ladies and gentlemen, I must caution you to remain in your seats in perfect quiet. Mm. Remember at all times that the margin between safety and danger is very narrow indeed. This is the cosmic monster, the most deadly beast in all the galaxy, responsible for sending thousands to the eternal award. And this is the incomparable Vicho, who defies death nightly in his close quarters combat with a very incarnation of evil. What we see, then, is a guy in a brown bear toga wrestling with a guy in a white bear suit. (laughs) They're literally giving each other bear hugs. It looks so phony, but what we hear is epic. An epic battle between good and evil, man versus beast, and courage versus fear. And it really is fun to hear. Oh, it is. And that is the charm of this episode, Marvello's showmanship or whatever, and and the buildup and everything. But, you know, I also agree with you. Those circus banners were really cool. And I'm not convinced those were just made for Lost in Space. Even though they had the characters' names on them, they looked like 
they could have been something rescued from the Fox prop department, and maybe they just yeah. uh, wrote the characters' names to match the, the banners that they had. They were really cool. Yeah. Knowing Irwin Allen, they probably went, wait a minute, why are we calling this guy Gringino? Let's just change him to the same name as the guy on the, on the banner right. and save the five bucks having it repainted. We'll make it Marvello. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. That's what I was thinking, because they didn't look like something that just, they looked old. They looked vintage. So, Well, whether they, they did or didn't, we know how Irwin's mind works. <laughs> and he's not going to spend money having somebody paint something that's already there. And it's a pretty safe bet that Fox does have some of those banners in their, oh, sure. in their prop department. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, next, speaking of that death-defying wrestling match between Vicho and the Cosmic Monster, who's apparently under the magician's mind control power, it begins like most WWF performances, with a lot of simulated combat and a great deal of hamming it up by Vicho, complete with moans and groans of agony. But when the bleached brute goes off script and throws the strong man to the ground, Vicho gets the wind knocked out of him, for real. Uh-oh. Confused, Marvello's hand claws at the air. Struggling to regain the mind control power over the awful ape, things get desperate when the creature lunges threateningly towards the Robinsons, who leap out of their seats, recoiling in fear for their lives, especially Dr. Smith, who this time uses Penny as his human shield. Happily, the danger is short-lived, though, as the wily wizard fiercely concentrates and uses the force. To ultimately corral the furry felon securely back into his jail cell. You know, that sequence is better than the magic act, but it was marred by the fact that you could clearly see the gap between the down-covered fishman mask and the furry white monster suit. That did kill the tension a little bit for me, but I was still kind of into it. And by the way, looking closely at the robot, I really loved watching B9's bubble and ear sensors reacting to the danger parts during the fight. That was really delightful. Yeah, that was neat, but you better be glad that you saw that gap between the head and the neck of the monster suit, because I sure as heck did, and if you didn't see it with the Blu-rays, I was really going to give you hell for that. (laughs) Now, later on, the monster has the same problem with one of his gloves while strangling Dr. Smith. I think the problem is that underneath the suit is black, so it stands out from the white fur and the Caucasian flesh. But what I find funnier still is that we both noticed this tiny wardrobe malfunction, yet neither of us noticed the dog trainer standing in the shot where Dr. (laughs) Smith first encounters the German Shepherds in the Space Trainer episode. I mean, that was literally a stranger on the set, you know, popping his head into the screen, and we missed it. So Uh, I'll never live that one down. That was so obvious. (laughs) But, you know, you make a good point. I hadn't thought of that. 
Dawson's wearing some sort of black leotard all over, I think, underneath that suit. And he probably does that all the time, but you wouldn't have noticed that as much in the regular brown gorilla suit, would you? As opposed to being underneath the, the white fur? Yeah. Now, see, I don't remember if it's underneath the fur that's black or if it's the leotard that he's wearing. But I do know that when you see the glove and the neck, yeah. you know, it's the contrast is dramatic. It really calls attention to it. It really does. It really does. But again... Uh, but, you know, how would they know that? Because they didn't practice the shot with the camera running and... You know, right. You're not going to do a retake, it's Irwin. Print it. Well, with calm restored, Marvello retakes the stage to introduce his next act. In the vastness of this mysterious universe are forces beyond the reasoning of any mortal. Volatile gases, radiations, electrical emanations, powers which have been mastered but by one person. Nubu the Magnificent! When the purple-suited performer rolls his cosmic generator gizmo out on stage, the Robinsons are as underwhelmed as we are. Most of Nubu's magnificent act is left to the imagination because we immediately cut backstage where a starving Marvello instructs Fenestra to wrap up her act quickly as he prepares her magic goblet trick before she goes on next. By the way, in the Duncan script, Kurt, Nubu's talent was supposed to be juggling cosmic energy balls created by that contraption that he rolled out on stage. I suppose you can guess why we never get to see that feat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's too funny. This episode basically has no special effects, except for, spoiler alert, two short laser blasts near the end. Other than that minor animation, the closest thing we get to special effect here is the stopping the camera and adding the prop and resuming the camera again trick, you know, which is the Mm. cheapest film gimmick in the book. (laughs) Bewitch used it in every single episode. That being said, I do like Nubo's cosmic box contraption. All those lights, bells, and whistles. It looks corny and everything, but I still love to have that device, along with the supreme cybernetic looter prop, uh, decorating my man cave. I mean, Mm. wouldn't you? Yeah, it is pretty cool looking. And it makes some pretty cool sound effects, too. So, yeah. Once again, music and the sound effects guys are saving the day sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, with a deep bow, Nubu acknowledges the Robinson's hearty applause, then drags his machine off stage. And with the act nearing a crescendo, Marvello returns to introduce the star of the show. And now, the star of our show, mistress of the occult, the only woman capable of reading the innermost secrets of the soul and materializing thoughts, the one and only Fenestra, Queen of Mystery! The beautiful mistress of the occult takes the stage, and despite the Saturn ring beanie on her head, she manages to set a reverent mood before asking a volunteer to assist her in accomplishing the impossible. Will leaps at the chance and joins her by that magic goblet trick setup. The girl in gold builds suspense with a heavy dose of mumbo-jumbo, while Will concentrates, eyes shut. Off stage, Marvello and Nubu observe with interest, but at the critical moment, something goes wrong. Fenestra can't get the fishing line to release the golden cup and drop into Will's open hand. But then, somehow, much to the castaway's delight, the goblet pops. 
out of nowhere into the boy's hand. No one is more surprised than Finestra, but peering through the curtain, Marvello understands and tells Nubu that it was Will who made the cup materialize. Finestra decides to repeat the trick just to make sure, coaching the boy to think of a form and allow it to become real. Everyone is wowed once more when a live purple frog pops into Will's open hand. While the excited Robinsons look on in wonder at the amethyst amphibian, a bewildered Finestra joins the awestruck others off stage. It was no trick, says a wide-eyed Marvello. The boy has the gift. He has the power. Ooh, creepy. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, that's a gift. A good gift, Billy. Now, now, now wish it into the cornfield. Please, Billy, wish it into the cornfield. <laughs> yeah, Will may have the gift, but this magic troop seems to require a lot more practice. They only had four acts, and half of them went completely wrong. The strong man got bested by the beast, and the clairvoyant, in air quotes, couldn't find the cup release. I guess her lucky Nubu didn't accidentally destroy the entire planet with his cosmic thingamaboob. But, oh uh, well. Like you say, creepy indeed. Yeah. Well, I guess since the Robinsons are getting to watch that show for free, there won't be any requests for refunds, huh? No. Uh, <laughs> That's crazy. Well, moments later, we dissolve on the purple frog firmly in Will's hands. You know, Kurt, I'm a little worried about that frog's chances on that desert planet. I I haven't seen any sign of water yet. Have you? (laughs) Yeah, and I'm worried about the fact that the bluish frogs, some of the most poisonous animals alive. I mean, they're part of a, how they pronounce it, uh, dendrobatite. Oh. Uh, Yeah, it's a South American Indians. They use their toxins for their poison darts. Yeah. One poison frog can kill 10 adults. So assuming Will and Penny only count as half, that means you could kill all five of the Robinsons. <laughs> plus Will and Penny, that's six. You know, <laughs> plus all four of the magic troop with just one frog. What is it with this kid? I mean, he collects radioactive rocks. <laughs> he plays with poison frogs. I can't wait to see his rattlesnake collection. It gives you a whole new meaning to the classic robot warning. Danger, Will Robinson, danger! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Ooh. Yeah, those poison darts. Don't tell Dr. Smith. No, indeed. Well, everyone's clustered around the boy and eagerly discussing the next act to follow. Dinner! But before the group heads for the Jupiter 2, a jovial Marvello tells Professor Robinson that he'll be along shortly, explaining there's always plenty of chores to do after a show. When the others have left, Marvello's jolliness melts away as he strides over to the cosmic monster's cage. The camera pushes in on the calculating conjurer as he removes his top hat and shares his thoughts with the creature. We still live in the age of miracles, my friend. Why, with that boy in our troop, we could set the entire Andromeda circuit on its collective ear. Marvello adds with an ominous glance at the Yappy Yeti that he may call on its services again causing the beast to sway in excitement. Yes, he will be our passport to glory. We'll not leave this planet without that boy. 
Ooh, oh man, Kurt. I knew that Marvella was not to be trusted, but why couldn't it be Dr. Smith who has the special power instead of Will? Then again, maybe when he sees Smith's act, he'll forget all about Will. Not. Yeah, you know, you have to wonder, if I had a, a boy who could conjure anything, you know, and I was a showman for a circus, yeah, I would think it can lead to glory and everything, but, you know, I might just use him to conjure up a lot of gold, you know, just <laughs> skip out the middleman stuff. We're still going to keep on traveling the universe and, you know, doing these podunk towns and everything. Hey, why don't you just conjure the gold? Yeah, really? Yeah. Really? Oh, well. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Well, I'm afraid to think about what sort of tricks Marvello's got in store for Will next, but we'll have to wait until after this commercial to see what happens next. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Kids, the circus is in town! It's the special Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus with 17 wonderful performers and animals that you can get free from post cereals. Here's Leo the Lion, Molly the Bareback Rider, Jolly the Horse, and many others. Now, here's how you can get these swell circus toys free. You'll find one in each of these special packages of good-to-eat post-raisin bran and those delicious post-toasties. Why, you can have your own circus, run sideshows, do tricks, everything. Remember, these circus toys come free in these special packages of Post Toasties. The crisp sweet corn flakes with that golden corn flavor and Post Raisin Bran, the only cereal in the world with sugar-coated raisins. When we return from the break to start Act 3, we're back at the alien encampment, where Marvello is conversing with Will near the monster's cage. The boy's captivated to learn that the cosmic creature comes from a glittering world with four silvery moons, an air that makes you feel marvelously alive. Seeing he's having the desired effect, Marvello spins a web with more tall tales about rivers of light, diamond mountains, golden plains, and other glories Will has never dreamed of. All of which the boy could see for himself, if he took his act on the road. But Will's one step ahead of Marvello. He already tried the trick again by himself, and it didn't work. But the shady showman counters. That's because he needs Fenestra as a conductress. To prove it, he entices the boy to participate in a further experiment. Calling Fenestra outside, they go through the routine again. This time, Will tries to materialize an apple by concentrating on something red and spherical. With the golden girl coaching him, he concentrates on the desired image appearing in his open hand. But when we hear that familiar electronic pop, (laughs) instead of a red delicious apple, The boy's disappointed when a little wooden ball materializes instead. It seems Will's gift is erratic, but that makes little difference to Marvello. It will suffice in its present form for now, and over the months to come, he says, they can refine his skills. The word months gets the boy's attention. Eyes widening, Marvello presents Will a rare opportunity to join his traveling troupe and become a star in his own right. Gulping, 
the boy thanks the roguish ringmaster, but politely declines. He'd like to go, but his family needs him now more than ever. Hmm. Kurt, something tells me Marvello's not giving up that easy. And by the way, I felt bad for Bill Mooney during the close-ups of that scene because he had a nice cold sore in his lips. Mm, poor guy. <laughs> Did you notice that? You saw that too. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, it's a big-ass canker sore right there on his mouth. <laughs> and all the time, I could just hear Irwin Allen shouting in the background, that damn Batman forced me to add color this season, and this is what I get for my $40,000 more per episode, a full-color blister on my child star's lower lip. <laughs> Curses, spoiled again. Oh, man. He must have felt bad about that. But what can he do? I mean, the show's got to go on, you know? No, no. But I like the way that they had it when he tried to recreate the trick. It went awry because that's very, very important later on when his ability to conjure things is going to become a life or death moment in the show. If we knew that it would work, there would be no suspense to that. Exactly. So it's very important to do this. Nice touch. Yeah, it is. It's a nice little story beat, and it does pay off, so that's cool to see. Well, Marvello's disappointed in Will's answer, but before he can make a counteroffer, their discussion is interrupted by the familiar and unusually cheerful voice of Dr. Smith. Good morning, good morning. Come along, you luggage. Don't loiter. Who strides into camp with his cybernetic supporter in tow. As I used to say back on Earth, whenever I approached, never fear, Smith is here. <laughs> Kane at the ready, Smith greets them with a the tip of his straw hat, which attracts Will's curiosity. What's that, Dr. Smith? A bit of haberdashery from before your time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Smith's fancy way of not answering the question. But the real question is, hey, where'd you get that straw hat, Dr. Smith? Oh, man. <laughs> not to mention the cane. <laughs> yeah. Well, cut Zach some slack. I'm sure he just picked up that hat and cane on his way to sabotage the Jupiter 2 <laughs> before accidentally getting trapped on board. He was probably planning on doing his little jig in that outfit to celebrate his successful espionage in the few remaining seconds before takeoff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we should rename Dr. Smith the Mad Hatter. He's got so many different hats. He's got the chef hat. He's got the doughboy helmet, the straw hat. Am I missing? <laughs> he's got a, yeah. a a hard hat, I think. For <laughs> yeah, he's going to have to start competing with uh, Charles Nelson Riley in Lidsville. That's <laughs> 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 oh, funny. How's that for a topper? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I always remember him on Match Game. I loved, <laughs> I love that Charles Nelson Riley. He's cool. I did think Lidsville was the best of the, you know, HR Pup and stuff and all that other stuff. Oh, the, the yeah, the yeah. Sid and Marty Croft shows. Yeah, yeah I and, liked. And of course, that's the best of the worst. But still, <laughs> <laughs> it was full color, and back then it was like wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the one that had Witchy Poo on it, right? That was a- no Witchy Poo was HR Pup and stuff. But okay. she did do a couple of crossover episodes, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, and she had actually uh, she, she was actually after. Charles Nelson Riley. I guess she didn't know the inside scoop on his orientation, <laughs> but uh, it was pretty funny. I seem to recall he was kind of put off by her too uh, in the in the episode. Yeah. You know, irritated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not into that sort of thing. Don't upstage me, doll. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Wow. Well, Doctor Smith sends Will running along back to the ship, and then gets down to the business of his audition with Marvello. 
Since, of course, his act requires an orchestra and spotlight for the full effect, Smith asks the maestro to use his imagination. Before he can respond, B9 interjects with some automated accolades. Hurrah! Hurrah! Not yet, you ninny. Having put the robot in his place, Dr. Smith takes the stage, then sets the scene for Marvello by painting a melodramatic picture with words. But within seconds of beginning his routine, Tiny Tim Smith's mincing performance stuns the alien into utter disbelief. Blissfully unaware of just how badly his vaudeville shtick is going over, it takes an involuntary eruption of laughter from the robot to bring this misery to an end. Seething at B9's insolence, Dr. Smith storms down to silence the cackling clod, but can only muzzle the ninny by removing his power pack. Yeah, Marvella's changing expression while watching Smith is golden. It starts off with this courteous smile, and then it just kind of melts into Mm. this wide-eyed expression of shock. (laughs) Uh, Did we mention that Smith is singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips? I remember when Tiny Tim first sang that on the Ed Sullivan show when I was a kid. And I think I gave that same exact expression that Marvello gave while I watched it. It was the, what the F is this? And, and here's the thing. That was in 1968, two years after Smith sang it on Lost in Space. Now, granted, the song was originally written in 1921. But it wasn't revived until 1967 by a California band called the Human Society, and that was a year after this episode. So if you ask me, Smith's hilarious portrayal of that song in 1966 prophesied, if not inspired, the return of that song as a cultural sensation in the two years that followed. So it's Smith, Mm. not Will, who should be working with the clairvoyant. Uh, Touche. That's very funny. But it is crazy to think that this preceded the whole, as you called it, the cultural phenomenon. And people probably today have no idea how big that actually was. It was everywhere, tiptoed through the tulips. I mean... It, it personified that era. It, it really did. did. It, I, I think he did it on Laugh-In, and he was on a bunch of different television shows. And it was you know, being played constantly or being talked about. And Tiny Tim himself became sort of a cultural icon because of it. And when I watched it, of course, when I saw this, I thought, oh, that's pretty neat. They included this, you mm-hmm, know, because mm-hmm. I thought he was imitating Tiny Tim. But no, it was the other way around. Exactly. And who knows? Tiny Tim probably saw this on Lost in Space. I mean, this was a big show back then, and it probably gave him some inspiration. I'm just surprised it never showed up on Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, especially if uh, Leonard Nimoy had done it. That would have been great. (laughs) With this Vulcan harp. (laughs) Oh, God. Remember, did you know that both Leonard Nimoy and Bill Shatner put out albums around the same time? (laughs) Like, there's a classic of Shatner doing... Oh, it's that song by the birds. I can't think of <laughs> which one it is, but... Uh, I can't remember which one it is either, but it's another one of those, like, he recites it as yes. opposed to singing it, you know, which is always hilarious. Where have all the flowers gone? Yeah. Far, far away. <laughs> now, my question to you is, who did it first? My bet is that Leonard Nimoy did it first and Shatner had to follow up. What do you think? Uh, pretty sure. Because Shatner was, there's a lot of stories about Shatner feeling upstaged by Leonard Nimoy on the show because Uh Spock was the one getting all the fan mail. And of course, Bill was the headliner, you know, so that Mm -hmm. was kind of funny. I guess uh, Guy Williams and Bill Shatner might have had some commiserating to do with each other. (laughs) 
other at times. Yeah, That's they funny. probably met after each show and, you know, uh, had a drink. Drowning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> drinking and, and uh, crying in their drink. Yeah. That damn Vulcan. Don't tell me about that Vulcan. I've got this. <laughs> <laughs> this intergalactic experimental psychologist. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. Well, with order restored, Broadway Zack offers to continue, but Marvello's already heard quite enough of Smith's unusual act and gives a series of polite excuses why, unfortunately, they have no room in their troupe for a song and dance act. Oh, dear. Instead, Marvello offers Smith an alternative. But if there was a manager who had an act that we liked, uh, say the... uh, Boy, for instance. Will? Then we would be delighted for that manager to come on a trip with us. Smith steps closer to the camera and tries hard to suppress his eagerness. And you might be willing to detour your flight by way of Earth? The grinning grifter moves closer and replies, I see no reason why not. Smith cuts his eyes over his shoulder in Marvello's direction. And the manager could, of course, remain there, could he not? Of course, but the boy would have to remain with the troop. That's only reasonable, my dear sir. This is purely hypothetical, of course. I have no idea whether the boy uh, would accept the idea of a personal manager. Dr. Smith spins around, finally facing his interlocutor. Let me assure you, sir, I anticipate no trouble in that area. None at all. Will doesn't make a single move without consulting his old friend and mentor, myself. We understand each other, then. I think that we do. I shall make all the arrangements. I must know as soon as possible. Of course you must. There might be perhaps a bit of trouble from the parents. Leaning in with a satisfied twinkle in his eye. Marvello tells Smith not to worry about that. He'll take care of them. Then waltzes off, leaving Dr. Smith alone with his comatose companion. I should leave you here to rust, you traitorous tin tabulation. Replacing the power pack, Smith continues the thought. But of course, everyone knows I have a soft heart, so I shall give you a second chance. Besides, it appears I shall be needing you. (laughs) The robot cackles in response, causing Smith to reach for the pack. But B-9 stops laughing in the nick of time. (laughs) There, that's better. Now come along with me, you ludicrous lump. There's much to be done. Come along. With that, the pair exit the frame, passing by the caged cosmic monster on their way back to the ship. Later that evening, we're back at the Robinson campsite. The professor and Don are struggling to repair the food purification unit. But thus far, their efforts are yielding a bitter harvest. It's a bitter harvest, all right. And not just because every time they turn on the FPU, that's my (laughs) cosmic abbreviation for food purification unit. Every time they activate that FPU, it destroys the food plants. But the way I see it, this is a blessing to disguise because those plants with their distinctive blue arrow on each leaf, those are Calias plants. Huh? And, and like the bluish purple frog, they're poisonous and not 
as poisonous as the frogs, but poisonous just the same. The best you could hope for is vomiting and diarrhea. So my <laughs> advice to the Robinsons is twofold. First, stick with the protein pellets, okay? And mm. avoid eating or even touching unusually bright plants or animals because it's nature's way of saying, leave me alone. Okay. Wow, that is funny. I had no idea. Good for you, Kurt. I didn't know you had such a green thumb. <laughs> you recognize those plants? Well, see, it's Irwin Allen. He can't resist the color. It's exact. <laughs> That's why nature does it. It's trying to say, Irwin, don't do this. But Irwin can't resist because he's paid for that forty thousand dollars episode. That's crazy. You know why go with a king snake when you can get a a really technicolor coral snake? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. boy. <laughs> They hardly ever bite. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that would make so much of a better pet for Penny. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they'd have to pull its teeth like poor little Debbie, though. Crazy. Oh, they'd have a tough time with a coral snake because it doesn't have any fangs. It has to chew on its victim in order to deliver the poison. That's true. Ah, Good point. Hey, this is like uh, Omaha. <laughs> what was yeah, that called? Mutual of Omaha's Wild, Wild Kingdom. Kingdom. Yeah, that's crazy. We all saw that show not because we had any interest whatsoever in animals, but because it was on right before the Walt Disney World. Exactly. So you had to see the half hour before. Yeah. Well, I always loved it how Marlon Perkins was always well away from the giant anaconda that was uh, strangling Jim to death. Jim, look out for that anaconda. <laughs> well, I could tell you a funny little coincidental story about Marlon Perkins. He actually attended a military school up in Lexington, Missouri called Wentworth Military Academy. And he got in trouble because he kept all sorts of wild animals in his dormitory room, which you're not supposed to do, but they didn't have any rules about it then. So after he left, they changed the rules and regs, and they said, you can't keep any pets except fish. Mm. And I know this because I happened to go to that same military academy, Wentworth Military Academy, in the 1970s. Wow. And when I was there, I didn't know anything about Marlon Perkins, but I thought, it'd be neat to have some fish here. So I got this huge aquarium, and I filled it with piranhas, <laughs> actual piranhas, <laughs> and I would charge the other cadets money in order to watch me feed them these live goldfish, which they would, of course, consume and just tear them to bits. And again, they didn't have the rules and the rules and regs saying I couldn't do this. So the moment I graduated, they went and they changed the rules and regs. No fish either, except in a 10-gallon tank, and it can't be you know anything that's uh, dangerous. Carnivorous fish yeah. not allowed. Well, that perfectly fits you, Kurt, that you would, <laughs> you would have piranha. Oh, that's wild. I didn't know Marlon Perkins went to Wentworth. Yeah, I mean... You heard about that story while you were there? No, no, I heard about it later. Crazy. Yeah, it was just a coincidence. Wouldn't it have been funny if I was in the actual same room? Because, I mean, that place was built in the 1880s, you know, yeah. and they kept recycling the same buildings over and over again. It was a great experience, though. Sadly, it shut down, and I guess it was 2007. Yeah. Gone with the ages. Well... How many degrees of separation between you and the Wild Kingdom? That's funny. Uh-huh. Mm. Well, after that disaster with the Coleus plant, John's ready to call it a night. As the men head into the ship, Dr. Smith and the robot emerge from the shadows and silently observe as the airlock hatch closes shut. With the coast clear... Smith stealthily leads his silver sidekick over to the unguarded FPU, then runs his hand over the myriad of colored buttons. What are you doing? Keep your voice down, you tarnished trumpet. Or better still, make no noise at all. Just listen. 
I will call out the dial readings, and you will record them. For what purpose? I merely wish to make it appear that there will be insufficient food, so that the boy will be more inclined towards self-sacrifice and the acceptance of Marvello's offer. I cannot accept that course of action. You can and you will just do as you're told and remember these figures. Top bank from left to right, 0.35.933.3. Bottom bank from left to right, 27.1, and 0010. Do you have that? Yes. I must warn you to change nothing. They are close to the final solution. Of course they are. And I wouldn't dream of jeopardizing their calculations, not for anything in the world. But to delay them a little is to give that dear boy a chance for the career he so richly deserves. And once I've departed this miserable veil, you can restore this machine to its proper settings, and no harm done. <laughs> now let's see. There. there, that should do it. What you have done is wrong. Spare me the moralizations, you sanctimonious scatterbrain. And remember, you're to keep quiet about this, not even a whisper. Then Smith moves on to the next act of his scheme and closer to the camera as B-9 listens over his shoulder. And now, I have work to do of a much happier sort. Since I shall be getting 10% of Will's salary, no, I think 20 would be more equitable since I shall negotiate a rather large sum for his efforts. Or perhaps 30. No, 40. Since the boy would have no chance at all except for me, I have always been the quintessence of fairness. 50-50. With a final cut of the eyes back at his reluctant confederate, Dr. Smith happily strides out of the frame, leaving the robot flummoxed and alone. <laughs> that was another bit of funny scene chewing by Jonathan Harris. And, you know, Kurt, we've seen these kinds of interchanges before. I have to say that for their first Lost in Space script, the Duncans certainly have Dr. Smith's voice down pat, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Of course, you have to wonder how much of that was the Duncans and how much was a little bit added by Smith himself. That's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, have... I'm sure that they included him renegotiating it as an aside, but just the wording that they yeah. it's done, it's probably got a little bit of Smithisms in there, if I know Jonathan Harris. Then the staging is so great, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> with the robot standing silently back there listening to this. I have always been the quintessence of fairness. <laughs> <laughs> that word was probably, that was a Smithism there, just that word. Sure, yeah. Okay, kids, what'd you learn this time at Lost in Space? Exactly. Well, next morning we dissolve on a close-up of another potted plant in the purifier's open chamber. A poisonous potted plant. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, it disintegrates in another brilliant flash powder blast. Oh, dear. The camera pulls back while John and the Major discuss their wilting fortunes, as Dr. Smith and Will silently observe. Until they know what's wrong with that machine, they're going to have a drastic food reduction, so the professor orders Don to make an inventory of all their edible supplies. The men leave Smith and Will alone to start working on Plan B, which gives the wily wordsmith a chance to work on Will without an audience. 
Will steps closer to the doctor and gives him the bad news. There's only a four-day supply of food left. Smith suggests they take a little stroll in the fresh air to inspire a little creative thinking. After a few short steps, Dr. Smith takes a seat on a nearby purple boulder to perform the kind of act he was really born for. Putting on a sober face, the doctor grimly takes stock of their impossible situation. It's an impossible situation, my boy, and the statistics are against us. Even at minimum rations, our food supply will be exhausted in four days. And it should take at least two weeks to repair the machine. More likely three. Maybe I could eat less. That's a noble idea, my boy, but they would never permit it. I fought to sacrifice myself. I demeaned myself to the point of auditioning for Marvello's troop in the hope that they would take me along. And thus, there would be one mouth less here to feed. But alas, they turned me down. He wants me to go with him. You? I can make things materialize. Perish the thought. It's out of the question. I forbid it. But you were willing to go. I don't matter. Oh, Will. I couldn't bear to see you spinning out there all alone in space without the company of a loved one to guide your footsteps. But there's no other way, is there? You're a fine and noble lad and immensely practical. I cannot shrink from my responsibility. I shall make the supreme sacrifice and accompany you. You will? Yes, and that will provide an extra margin of food that will ensure the survival of your family. I suggest we inform our fellow of our decision. Yes, sir. You're a stout lad. Come along, my boy. His subterfuge complete, Daddy Zack quickly ushers the stout lad out of the camp before the rest of the castaways have a chance to spoil his well-oiled scheme. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Kurt, I've lost count how many times Smith's pulled this exact trick on Will. But you'd think by now the boy'd be able to pick up on the fact that whenever he's pouring on the compliments, that should set off a red alert, warning, warning, to disregard anything that Smith's selling. Oh, that's for sure. But the only time Will ever seemed to recognize Smith was manipulating him with compliments was after he evolved taking that space ride in the Change of Space episode. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yet even despite Will's super IQ in that episode, Smith still managed to manipulate the little Einstein into doing exactly what he wanted. So if genius Will falls for Smith's BS parade, you could assume regular Will doesn't stand a chance. Indeed. Uh... Well, with this act nearing a close, Will and his business manager have delighted Marvello with their decision to join his troop. But Will seems less than thrilled. Even the sly salesman's promises of success, such as the universe has never seen before, leaves the boy looking more glum than glad. Marvello sends Will off to work with Finestra on the finer points of showmanship. And with the boy out of earshot, Dr. Smith tries to sell Marvello on his idea for a new circus banner, giving him top billing. <laughs> the ringmaster fobs Smith off by informing him of their departure window for liftoff at precisely noon tomorrow and recommends the doctor have Will there 10 minutes early. <laughs> oh, man. For you millennials out there who didn't start flying until 9-11, we didn't always have to show up at the airport too freaking hours before takeoff <laughs> to get analyzed by TSA. 10 minutes used to be more than enough time to catch a flight. Gone are those days. That's for sure. Oh, the pain. 
Well, the good doctor nods in agreement and assures the slippery salesman that he can rely on him. With a great deal of surreptitious packing to be done, Dr. Smith excuses himself and heads back to the ship. But foreshadowing trouble, he stops mid-stride and lingers for a moment right in front of the cosmic monster's cage, waxing poetically to Marvello. The future does indeed look bright with promise, veritably glowing with it. Perhaps, but just before we go to break, Dr. Smith fails to notice the alien snowman's fur-covered claws reaching through the bars for his scrawny neck. And I can guarantee you, my dear Marvello, that... Uh-oh, looks like that bright light Smith saw coming might be on the other side of eternity, but we'll have to wait until after this word from our sponsor to find out more. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... This nonprofit podcast is made possible with support from... Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space, The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at monsterwax.com. That's monster, W-A-X, dot com. And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit patreon.com and search Alpha Control. When we return from the break to start what might be Dr. Smith's final act, the fearful physician is struggling to break free of the cosmic monster's powerful paws. An alarmed Marvello raises a contorted hand and uses the Force to compel the fair-haired fiend to release Dr. Smith. Oh dear. Finally free of the beast's grisly grasp, Smith assures Marvello that he's quite all right, adding, It's a good thing I have an iron constitution that would have killed a lesser man. But turning back to face his attacker, Dr. Smith's iron constitution is all but vetoed when the monster lunges at him through the bars once more. Sending the hysterical healer heading for the hills. You gotta love this control hand thing (laughs) that Marvella uses on the cosmic monster. He raises his hand in the air, aims it at the monster, and then forms a claw. Or, as they would say in Get Smart, the craw! Now, other productions like Star Trek would have animated cosmic rays shooting from the craw to the cosmic monster. But spoiler alert, this is not Star Trek. It's an Irwin Allen production, so instead we get absolutely no special effect, only a sound effect. Some sort of high-pitched siren-like sound. And we're supposed to imagine the rest. At first, I thought he had some sort of device in his hand, but no, he doesn't even have that. Not even a little button. It's just the claw, you know? Yeah. But it does suggest that Marvello has at least 
two real magical powers. The ability to not only control the monster with the crawl, but also to create a strange sound effect out of thin air that we can <laughs> clearly hear whenever he does it, which is not only cool, but it's kind of charming, really. You know? Yeah, it was, but I have to admit, when he did it the first time when they were putting on the circus show for the Robinsons, I was confused. Like you said, has he got something in his hand? Because it was a long shot, mm-hmm. and you heard that sound effect that sounded like something you know a device would have emitted. So, right. Uh, you know, it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that's one of those things that the first time I watched it, it kind of ruined that scene for me. But then the second time, after I knew it was supposed to happen, you know, I accepted it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why a lot of these episodes, the first time, they're just, there's something in the bottom of your stomach that doesn't feel right. (laughs) But then the second time, you can kind of, okay, all right, I know what this is going to taste like, so I'm not going to spit it out. Exactly. That's a good, (laughs) good analogy. That's funny. Well, the next day, we're back inside the ship with Will and Dr. Smith. Wearing a gloomy face, the boy begs permission to say goodbye to his family. But Smith convinces Will they'd never allow him to make the sacrifice. And even if they did, it would only cause them grievous and unbearable pain. (laughs) With time running out before liftoff, Smith nudges the boy along, suggesting Will leave first, followed shortly by himself. Glumly shuffling out of the airlock for perhaps the last time, the boy pauses at the top of the ramp. In a scene meant to tug at our heartstrings, Will gazes at his family who are busily working and blissfully unaware that they may never see him again. And of course, this has all got the special music playing in the background. (laughs) Exactly. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. Passing close to his best buddy, B-9, he starts to speak, but stops himself before uttering a word. Then he makes the rounds to share a few final seconds with the rest of the Robinsons, all the time never letting on where he's headed next. In addition to complimenting Judy giving Penny his purple frog. Yeah, that was nice of him, I thought, especially. Here, I want you to have this, my highly poisonous dart frog. Be sure to lick your hands after playing with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's That's when you know he's still a little brother, you know? (laughs) Exactly. That's funny. Uh... Then he interrupts Dad and Don with a sad puppy dog stare. Will ends his one-sided farewell with an unexpected kiss on Mom's cheek. Startled, Maureen returns the favor with a hug and a smile, but immediately asks if he's up to something. Will answers her question with one of his own, asking to say goodbye to Marvello and his troop before they leave the planet. Mom gives the okay, but ironically warns him to come right back. Without uttering another word, Will Robinson reluctantly leaves his family behind to run away with the circus. Not out of a search for fame, fortune, or adventure, but because it's the only way he can think to save their lives. Hmm. Yeah, that was a bit of a tearjerker moment for me, Kurt, I have to admit. That was a, a real, you know, heartfelt scene, I thought. Oh, yeah. And, you know, running away to join the circus, it's a famous disappearing child stereotype. But there's another one from Europe that is rather similar. And that's the fear that when the gypsies come to town, 
they might steal your children when they leave. Mm -hmm. Now, the gypsies, they're poor, but colorful nomads who travel throughout Europe in colorful wagons and costumes and make money fixing things or telling fortunes or putting on shows or even prostitution. Yes. So they also have this shifty, carny reputation as well. This story blends both of those stereotypes with this Marbello troupe. So Will thinks he's running away to join the circus, but in reality, he's actually being kidnapped. That's true. That's a good point. Well, moments later, Major West makes an unsettling discovery. The settings on their food purification machine have been mysteriously misadjusted. Uh-oh. Bewildered by the news, John quizzes the other Robinsons outside the ship about it, and no one has touched the machine. Turning his attention to the robot, the professor grills B-9 and asks if he altered the settings on the purifier. The robot answers truthfully that he didn't, but volunteers no more information and waits for Don to ask the obvious follow-up. Does he know what happened to it? Indeed, he does, but he cannot tell them. And then... Right on cue, an innocent-looking Dr. Smith saunters out of the airlock with his careworn suitcase in hand. Good morning, good morning! (laughs) (laughs) And despite his weakened condition, he's on his way to collect edible berries for them all. John ignores Smith's diversion and cuts to the chase, coolly informing him of their discovery. Smith feigns ignorance, but Major West isn't buying it. Of all the idiotic, boneheaded things to do, Smith, tell me something, though. Why would you mess up our food supply when you know you'll go hungry right along with the rest of us? How dare you accuse me, Major? I've been your scapegoat long enough. The moment anything untoward occurs, I become your emotional football. Well, let me tell you... The truth, Smith, because the robot saw everything. He's just trying to incriminate me. That's what he's trying to do. Glaring at B-9, Smith seethes. You, Judas, I ordered you to keep silent. John calmly defends the robot's honor to Smith, whose suitcase decides to unexpectedly spring open, (laughs) spilling his travel clothes all over the ground. Oh, dear. Speaking for the others, the professor asks, Well, Doctor, just where do you think you're going? (laughs) We'll have to have his chance. It was absolutely vital, and he'd never have gone unless he had a compelling reason. Marines aghast at the revelation, but Smith tries to explain. I was to have gone along with him and watch over him. Learning from Smith the aliens depart at noon, the professor orders Don to grab the laser rifles so they can try to stop them. Exposed, Smith tries to defend his actions. You're not in jeopardy, I assure you. How could you think I'd place my dear friends in jeopardy? The robot has the proper settings for the machine. But his words fall on deaf ears, especially for Professor Robinson, who leaves Smith an icy warning. If anything happens to my son, I'm going to skin you alive. (laughs) Just then, the Major arrives with their weapons, and the other adults race off to save Will. Bringing up the rear as usual, Dr. Smith first turns his ire on poor old B-9. You traitor! Then scurries out of the frame in pursuit of the others. <laughs> wow. We've seen it before, Kurt, but I really have to ask again. Why would Smith have allowed B-9 in on his scheme in the first place? 
And why would B-9 follow Smith's orders not to tell the others what he was up to? Well, as Smith said earlier, yours is not to question why, but to do or die. (laughs) But yeah, it's one of those force field factor things that's used whenever needed. I mean, because I can't believe that Smith, the master chessman, can figure out that would be... Mm. And besides, we're not supposed to remember from one week to the next how inconsistent it is. And for the most part, people don't notice. For example, did you notice when Don ran inside and brought out those two fully charged breadsticks? I I mean, laser rifles. (laughs) Did you notice that just two episodes earlier that Smith had turned over all their laser rifles to the robot race in the ghost planet? Yeah. And suddenly they're back, you know? Yep. Maybe those particular laser rifles stowed away like Smith did. (laughs) But but the point is, most people ignore that stuff. It takes two know-it-all nerds with way too much time who are clearly on the spectrum to notice and care about (laughs) such minor details. Uh, Embarrassing. uh, Oh, yes. I plead guilty to that charge. That's true. Yeah, you do. You'd forget about that. You forget those guns were gone, right? That's funny. But we're here to remind you. (laughs) (laughs) Not so fast, Erwin. That's great. Well, with the act nearing a finale, we dissolve back to the alien encampment. With the last of the circus gear being loaded aboard their spaceship, Marvello excitedly announces there's only five minutes to go before they're blast off into space. Seeing Will look downcast, the magician promises that soon the sadness will fade, replaced by the applause of millions. But suddenly, the aliens are startled by the approach of the entire Robinson Rescue Squad. Dr. Marvello! Will? Come for Will. Stand back, I warn you. Go on board, start the engines. Everybody, wait here. Yeah, it's the strong man who alerts Marvello about the approaching Robinsons. He hasn't said a single word during the rest of the episode, and I was afraid he wasn't going to get a speaking credit. But lucky for him, in the very last scene, he gets his big break. And, you know, that's important because if you don't speak, you don't get the points towards your union card, you know. Mm. So he points off screen and he shouts his big line, Dr. Movello! (laughs) Now, that may seem like a tiny line that most people would be embarrassed by it. But to someone trying to get into the Screen Actors Guild, that's a very big deal. Yeah. Because you have to have worked in at least three or more union productions with a speaking role to get your SAG card. So even a tiny Dr. Movello line is very important. Oh, man. You had to bring that up, didn't you? (laughs) I don't know if you remember this story, Kurt, but... When I was between leaving the Air Force and starting working for the airlines, I had a little time on my hands, and I got to be an extra in the Steven Seagal movie that was called Under Siege. It was a very popular movie back in the early 1990s. Oh, yeah. 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 It, they filmed it on the battleship Alabama, and I was an extra dressed up as a, an ordinary sailor with a Popeye sailor uniform on. And, of course, I knew what you were talking about, and I kept working on trying to, like, sort of, not obviously mugging for the camera, but kept thinking, Uh now, wait a minute, how can I possibly get a speaking role? And there was one scene they were filming. We were on the bridge of the ship, and they had the uh, captain of the ship was coming in, and they started walking through it. And I said, oh, to the assistant director, some little funky, I said, oh, you know, actually, I, I was in the military, and it's protocol for the nearest sailor to announce captain on the bridge whenever the captain enters. And I was thinking, oh, since I suggested this, I'll be the one to get to say it. And of course, uh, uh, uh. Uh, little Marvin or whoever he was brought it to the attention of the director. He's like, oh, that's a great idea. That's perfect. Yes, we definitely want that done. Um, oh, oh, come over here, Warren. Uh, we're going to have you stand right next to here and you'll get to say captain on the bridge. <laughs> 
Dang. And was... uh, thank the other flunky who suggested it. We really appreciate it. Okay, <laughs> Warren, are you ready? <laughs> Makeup. Oh, that's funny. But you are still in that scene. I am in that scene. You know, every time I see that movie, which, you know, I do it every morning when I watch that movie. <sighs> it's my favorite movie. Yeah. Steven Stigel is so great. And my favorite guy is Warren. The way he delivers that line. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, that had a couple other good actors in it, too. It had uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who was really, I got to. Yeah, that was his breakout role. It was a great part for him. And he was actually a, a super cool guy. He would sit there and chat with everybody between takes. And uh, Gary Busey was in it. He played a typical crazy part. He was a nice guy, too. But Steven Seagal, man, the fame and the star power really went to his head because anytime they were on break for more than like two minutes, he had a limo that would drive him back to his trailer and they'd have to wait and set things up. And then he'd show up and not a word to anyone. He'd stride up there and uh, do his bit and then the limo would take him back off. So Yeah, you, you always had to like, you had to see that to really believe it because it's... <laughs> Uh, it was a fun experience, though, but I, you brought back a painful memory. My, I was this close to having at least one talking credit. but If, if you just had that one and then just two more, yeah. then you wouldn't be stuck doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the pain. Well, with the Robinsons halting a few paces away, the professor announces that they've come for Will. But Marvello grabs hold of the boy and warns the castaways to stand back while he signals for the rest of his troop to board the ship and start the engines. Ordering the others to stay clear, John takes a couple of steps forward and speaks directly to his son and explains that Dr. Smith tricked him. The purification machine will work and there'll be plenty of food. That hits Will like a thunderclap and he starts struggling to break free of Marvello's greasy clutches. But the rotten ringmaster refuses to let go and shouts that Will belongs to him now as he drags the boy closer to the ship's boarding ramp. The confrontation intensifies as Marvello ominously gives them one last chance to avoid destruction. But feeling they've got the alien outgunned, John stands his ground and demands Marvello release Will. They don't intend to let him take their son. That was a shocking moment. Seeing Marbello grab Will as a hostage and essentially threaten to murder the boy or the family or both. Mm -hmm. We knew he was conniving, but a killer? I mean, come on. Yeah. That was a grim surprise. Now, as a result, I'm not going to support his circus anymore after seeing his true colors. I don't know about <laughs> you, but... No. But that was, that was the most sinister moment, I think, for the character. And it did seem out of character. It did. And there's going to be a big contrast as we resolve this thing, but uh, just hold that thought. Yeah. Well, as if things couldn't get any worse, suddenly the tables are turned. When we see the cosmic monster unexpectedly lumbering out of the spaceship... The castaways recoil in horror at the sight of the woolly wampa. Not waiting to find out if this animal is a protected species, the professor fires a couple of high-powered laser blasts. Enraged but not destroyed, it seems this furry freak is impervious to laser beams. Uh-oh. When the monster leaps down from the ramp, Will manages to break free from Marvello and courageously takes a position directly between his father and the looming beast. The boy demands the magician call off his goon, but before the alien can act, 
Will swept aside by the monster. Who then lunges forward and seizes John in a crushing bear hug. Tossing the professor to the ground like a broken rag doll. Oh boy. Joining forces with Fenestra, Will pleads with her to help him save his father as the grisly gorilla slowly moves in for the kill. Proving she's golden inside and out, Fenestra agrees, and together they manage to materialize a large Bowie knife which pops into John's hand at the last possible second. Oh dear. Now I know it's rude to interrupt a knife fight, especially when you're all breathlessly waiting to see whether Will or his father survive. Spoiler alert, the father lives. <laughs> Too bad the chewy boy gets eaten alive, but you know, actually just kidding. But as you pointed out, that wasn't just any knife. That was a Bowie knife. It was designed by Jim Bowie, the famous patriot who was killed at the Alamo. So it's mm-hmm. pretty ironic giving that knife of all knives to Zorro, the famous Mexican patriot. <laughs> Legend has it that Bowie was in a sword fight with a Mexican and that his sword broke in half but in such a way that it still had a point, and he was able to use it to maneuver it better and win the fight. Wow. Realizing that this combination short sword, big-ass knife was easier to use in close-quarter combat, he had one specifically made for him by James Black. He then used that blade in 1827 during a duel on a Mississippi sandbar, and he won that fight against several men, despite being stabbed, shot, and beaten half to death. Wow. It made him and his knife quite famous. He had another duel in uh, 1829, and he spared that opponent, who then went out and hired three assassins to track down and kill Bowie. He met up with a trio in Texas in 1831. They had guns. He only had that knife. And you probably heard the old adage, never bring a knife to a gunfight. Mm-hmm. Well, never say never, because he killed all three men. One, he nearly decapitated, and the other, he disemboweled. Wow. The skull of the third one, he split it wide open. So that knife has a very colorful history. We now return you to the other duel between Sorrow <laughs> and the Cosmic Monster. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's not near as colorful, but anyway. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. I mean, I I knew the bit about, you know, Jim Bowie being at the Alamo, but I didn't know about the legend that it was his broken sword that inspired the entire design. That's cool. I'm not sure whether that legend is accurate, you know. Sure, but it's a fun story, yeah. But all the other details, they are. I mean, those are historical records sort of thing. Man, he's a tough dude. <laughs> the legend that I saw was only mentioned in a Topps chewing card set called... Uh, chewing gum uh, set, you said? Yeah, it was called uh, Scoops. I think it was called Scoops. Oh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was called Scoops. And it had these historical moments. And, uh, you know, sometimes you find these things. And but see, what we don't remember is that history used to be something that everybody learned in school. Mm. Now it's basically relegated to the Internet. But now that the Internet is all omnipresent, we have this tendency to believe, well, that's it. But the internet didn't start until like the 1980s. So if it wasn't really common knowledge at that time, a lot of the stuff just didn't make it to the internet. That's true. So, you know, history was sort of divided into this AD and BC before. They're probably going to have this other date now that's going to be like 
B-I and, you know, A-I, which will be after internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many things that have changed. I mean, it's it's kind of a cliche to say it, but who has encyclopedias anymore? Exactly. I remember my parents spent big bucks on this giant world book encyclopedia set. You know, they had to buy it a volume at a time. Over, I think it took them 10 years to get the set completed. And that was a big deal when I was in school using it for like writing little research papers and things like that, you know? Well, I don't like spending the money either, but, you know, if it's going to teach Lane something, we, we better go ahead and invest in it. <laughs> uh, I can hear Neil now. Oh, yes. Well, we still have those someplace. It's like a, a time capsule for sure. Yeah. Those are neat time capsules, too, because you can see all sorts of, you know, politically incorrect things that were common knowledge back then. Exactly. Who's to blame for World War One? Who's to blame for World War Two? I mean, a lot of this stuff has changed, and now you just can't even find references. That's a problem with the internet-based history, is they can easily erase all these unpopular uh, opinions. Yeah. Or facts, as they right. used to be called. Yeah, that's why I don't really do ebooks or anything like that. I, if I'm going to read a book or buy one especially, I like to buy the, you know, the physical copy of things. So, mm-hmm. And they have, they have all these arguments about whether they should include this or that in the Bible. Well, if it was all internet-based, we'd never know what was in the original Bible. Yep. It'd be gone. Indeed. Moving well, right along. Yes. We now return you back to the sword fight yes. with the cosmic monster oh. already in progress. <laughs> <laughs> well, leaping to his feet, the professor tries to Zorro his way out of this mess. But after a few well-played jabs with a knife... The fearsome fiend somehow manages to deflect John's attacks and subdue him in one failed stroke. (laughs) Now what? With his father's life hanging in the balance, Will rushes over to Marvello and in desperation promises to do anything he asks if only he'll stop the monster before it's too late. The alien answers by shouting, no, at the beast, and uses his powers to force the creature off the battered professor and back into their spaceship. With his son's help, John staggers back to his feet and orders the boy to get back. But Will says he gave Marvello his word. Thankfully, in a stunning change of character, the sentimental showman wistfully says he couldn't take Will with him even if he wished because a great performer must put his heart in his work. But Will's heart belongs back home with his family. The older man's craggy face turns soft as he asks the boy to do him one small favor and take a golden placket as a remembrance. And if he should ever get back to Earth, to tell all his friends that he has witnessed one of the marvels of the universe, the miracle extravaganza of Dr. Marvello bidding the frazzled castaways adieu with a grand wave of his hat, Marvello and Finestra disappear inside their well-traveled capsule. And seconds later, as the reunited Robinsons watch, Marvello's ship lifts off in a blizzard of rocket exhaust. Cutting to the daylight version of the Traveling Man special effects shot we've seen multiple times before, the capsule climbs gracefully up through the stratosphere, heading for outer space and cheering crowds. 
Yeah, it was great seeing that rocket exhaust blow past the Robinson's feet when it cuts back to them, looking up at the disappearing spacecraft, which you have to wonder, how did they get all those people in that tiny little telephone booth <laughs> traveling, man? You know? but they kind of dropped the ball in the earlier episode, Change of Space, when the creature took off and there wasn't any of that wind or exhaust blowing past him. Do you remember that? Yeah. Will was just holding his arms over his face as if there was. I mean, how hard is it to turn on the fan and throw some sand in front of it? But, you know, whatever. It takes five more minutes. But what was less realistic, however, was how quickly the Robinsons seemed to forgive Marvello for almost killing John and trying to kidnap their kid. <laughs> I mean, Marvello has his charm about him. That's to be sure. There's no debate about that. But if you try to kill me and steal my children, it's going to take more than a small golden placket <laughs> to earn my forgiveness. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think I'd want something a little bigger, like, say, a large cash settlement from Morgan and Morgan, offices of your city, <laughs> USA or whatever. I mean, that was awkward. No, it was pretty awkward. It's all part of these all's well that ends well endings. They are very forgiving of everybody. And you've mentioned it before, Dr. Smith especially, but that was a quick uh-huh. <laughs> that was a quick uh, turn of the cheek, as they say. But commenting on the rocket exhaust, I like the fact it looked like they must have had like fire extinguishers, you know, just out of mm-hmm. a frame or whatever. But that was a nice effect for an episode that was otherwise pretty devoid of, you know, dazzling special effects. You know, we did get a couple laser animation blasts, but that was neat. And it added to the real like you say, unlike the change of space liftoff. But you know, you put your finger on it. That was a nice effect. It was not a special effect. It didn't cost anything. I mean, there was no animation or anything. It was just like, hey, we got that fire extinguisher over there. Let's go ahead and put that. You know, come on. Uh, I'm giving them try hard points, I guess, uh, if nothing else. Yeah. Hey, we gave them the sound effect for the qual. What are they complaining about? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, with the space circus gone, Will shows Mom the curious little present he got. But unsure of what it is, Maureen passes it to John, who figures it to be a lifetime free pass to Marvello's show. Wow, that's valuable. <laughs> yeah, that's that golden placard I'm talking about. <laughs> How are they ever going to get to use it? They're stuck on this planet for, for details, <laughs> details. Exactly. <laughs> Let me give you some Confederate dollars while I'm at it, right? That's funny. And I'm betting you that's only gold, you know, coating. It's <laughs> oh, man. Well, everyone smiles at the thought of another night at the circus, including Dr. Smith, who chimes in. As I always say, all's well that didn't swell. Uh-uh-uh. But Major West, not about to let Smith off that easy. And the castaways all giggle as Professor Robinson announces he has the perfect punishment in mind for the good doctor. Later, dissolving to a close-up of our reluctant stowaway, looking more miserable than ever, the tale comes to a chuckle-worthy ending as the camera does a long pullback, revealing the robot standing next to Dr. Smith, who sighs. Very well, get on with it. One and a two and a three. Tiptoe to the Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on Space Circus. Ah, well, you know, every time I watched the episode, I enjoyed it, especially after the first time. I've seen it five or six times. In fact, the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it. Yes, it's more comedy than science fiction, but the dialogue is excellent. The characters are very three-dimensional. 
And I love all that carnival showbiz stuff they include, most of it pretty realistic. Perhaps the most realistic aspect is Marvello as the hustler, the con man, and the thief. We need to steal your children to improve his act. And yet, mm. he's still likable. The whole troupe reminds me of the classic spook shows when magicians would travel from town to town, rent out movie theaters at midnight, and put on similar magic acts, complete with the monsters that they would turn loose on the audience. Maybe not the cosmic monsters, but Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, and the like. They made a ton of money doing that stuff back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And I expect the Duncans either heard about it or saw such acts and that it inspired their script. Because like Marvello, these mad magicians were real characters. And they really knew how to embellish whatever they did to make it sound a million times more elaborate than it actually was. I also appreciated that we finally got a serious monster. Our first for season two. True, he had not one but two different wardrobe malfunctions, and (laughs) he'll be recycled in future episodes. But at least we didn't have the giant testicles dangling underneath his chin. (laughs) Like that stupid bird monster from last week. Oh, man. I'll never let them live that one down. Yeah. Smith was in top form in this episode, too. I couldn't believe they let him off so easy after collaborating with kidnappers, though, but... What's it going to take to convince the Robinsons that Smith is a walking time bomb just waiting to explode and destroy them all? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he literally almost did that in the last episode, right? Yeah. He does this every week. Heck, last week he was literally a walking time bomb, and even then they didn't learn anything. Apparently, they not only expect us to reset and forget everything that happened last week, they expect the Robinsons to forget as well. (laughs) But I can't forget. I'm cursed with the memory. That's why they call me... Kersteiner, I guess. <laughs> I'm watching this week's episode, and I'm, I'm waiting for them to start dropping dead from the radiation poisoning that they experienced two episodes ago when they entered the radiation belt of the ghost planet, you know? You usually die from that stuff within two weeks, and so far, no one's even gotten nauseous. <laughs> Maybe after they eat this poisonous plant, you know? My OCD just can't work within Irwin Allen's universe. Uh, all that aside... I give this one top marks for entertainment. It wasn't scary. It wasn't particularly thrilling. And it certainly wasn't very serious. But it was fun. And I will gladly watch it again. How about you? Well, uh... Let me start with what I liked about it. It was a very warm-hearted story that didn't just dwell on Smith, Will, and the robot, which we're going to get a lot of this season. And there were some good moments for the entire cast. Um, Okay, so translated, the word is no. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't like it. Come out and say it. We just had an election where everybody's talking out both sides of their mouth. Let's just be plain for once, okay? You didn't like it. Well, I'll say it this way. Let me put it this way. Of the five episodes we've watched in season two, Mm -hmm. I'll say this is my least favorite. But I think Mm -hmm. I might have liked it a little bit more if the budget hadn't been cut. Because I was less than impressed with that space circus itself as far as a lot of the cosmic feats of wonder stuff goes. But Mm -hmm. maybe that played into the whole idea that Marvello and his circus troupe were down on their luck and a pale imitation of what they might have been in years past. In fact, the whole idea of a circus in space seems a little retro at best or a weird anachronism at worst. Heck, a circus seems like something from another age today in 2020, much less the futuristic world of 1998. Hmm. So, like I said, for me, I have to admit, of the season two episodes we've watched so far, this is probably my least favorite. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, knowing me, if I were flipping channels and stumbled across this episode, I'd probably stick around to be amazed, amused, 
and confounded again by the Space Circus. Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Several nights later, in a rocky grotto some distance from the Jupiter 2, Will observes as Dr. Smith prepares to make a batch of his illicit medicinal wine using a surly B9 as an unauthorized power supply. Abruptly, the little old winemaker is rattled when the robot warns of an alien presence approaching. Unnerved, Smith tries to send Will out to have a look, but just then, Dr. Smith screams in horror when they're confronted by a familiar-looking one-eyed monster carrying a strange alien device. Becoming hysterical, Smith instinctively grabs his human shield Will and orders the cowardly clump to protect them. Unfortunately, being used to jumpstart Smith's liquor still has drained B-9 of the power to fire an electrical charge. Uh Uh-oh. Discretion being the better part of valor, our trio of imperiled castaways retreat to the safety of the Jupiter II, just as that menacing beast breaks through a stack of the doctor's wine barrels. Oh, dear. But before we can find out what happens next, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Wow, Kurt. Seeing that familiar-looking hairy monster show up had me almost as scared as Dr. Smith. Not of a monster, but the thought that his creepy sidekick, Michael Pollard, might be back as well (laughs) next time. Oh, the pain. Uh, I I always liked that Cyclops monster with his eye on the long, bouncing stock. (laughs) But it wasn't as scary. Even a magic mirror wasn't that scary. And it's even less scary here because he's carrying that computer box or whatever it is in his arms. I mean, what's he going to do if he catches you? He can't use his claws. He's carrying that thing. He can't bite you because the box is too thick for him to bend over. About the only thing he could hope to do is to stretch that long eye stock far enough and whip you a few times with those oversized eyelashes. You know, I mean, come on. That's crazy. Yeah. Maybe he cries acid tears or something. I guess we'll have to tune in next week, folks, to find out. Yeah, exactly. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 35 of Lost in Space, titled The Prisoners of Space. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.